It's always hard to think of intros for these things. Well, especially when you do it like 15 seconds beforehand. Right. You know, I try to think of things in advance, but you know, then I always talk myself out of them. Oh, yeah. You know, I could open with, hey, Paul, how does your nose feel? And then Paul could laugh and be like, my nose feels fine. And I could say, that's good. It probably feels better than the guy whose nose got caved in in Pan's Labyrinth. And then everybody would be really depressed. And that's how we'd start the show. Yeah. We, we like to save the depression until the end of the show. I listened to this whole podcast. No. <laughs> All right. That's the intro. I'm going to go with that. Like a highly questionable intro. Have you ever watched that on ESPN? No. Highly questionable is a great show on ESPN with sports journalist uh, Dan Lebetard, and for years, for like a decade, his his retired father, Poppy. And one of the hallmarks of this show is that you know that that he and the guests will be talking, you know, like we do pre-show. And then he'll find the most least opportune moment where they're saying something dumb or embarrassing about themselves and be like, welcome to highly questionable. And you know, it's time to get our show started. And that's the intro they use for the show. So it's great. What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. I'm Jake. I am Paul. Welcome inside our crazy brains. And inside this very special Halloween edition of Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. I hate Halloween. Which explains why you actually got out of watching a true Halloween movie this year. That's true. I preempted preempted Paul's usual strike on me where he gets me to watch something truly horrific and i said paul how about i pick the horror movie this year borat subsequent movie film <laughs> Which after one? paul finished screaming like a little girl he said no and i said all right how about pan's labyrinth <laughs> and i caved in a moment of weakness i caved it's not even really a horror movie well, I do have some things to say about that because I, I actually do believe it really is a horror movie and I will defend that position with vigor. Oh, curses. You will be wrong as usual, but that's all right. And then just to, to throw Paul a bone and actually watch a Halloween movie, we watched <laughs> the newest Halloween movie in the world, and that is Adam Sandler's Hubie Halloween. Let me just say for the record, I really wanted Jake to watch The Haunting of Bly Manor. That would have been great. That would have been very Halloween-y. Hubie Halloween, it squeaks by on a technicality. (laughs) And I just have to say, I feel better this year with our Halloween episode than I have in any years past. So it's good to be alive. 2020 is turning around. Goodness gracious. I just, I feel like this is the spark that lights the rebellion. That turned 2020 around. I feel cheated. (laughs) Cheated. See, I don't, I don't think, I don't feel bad about you feeling cheated because I know you're going to watch plenty of crappy horror movies on your own. 
Well, but see, here's the thing. My wife doesn't like horror movies either. My daughter is sequestering herself because she's just about to have a baby. That's who I usually watch horror movies with. Mm. You know, I, I back in my youth, I had some some folks who I would watch horror movies with, but they are not in, in you know, proximity where I can do that. So this was like my excuse this year to watch something horrific. <laughs> and now it's gone. And I ripped it from your cold, still life-filled fingers. <laughs> you know, there's a Google Chrome extension now where you can watch, you can host virtual watch parties. You could do that with your daughter even while she's sequestering herself. Oh, we might have to do that actually this weekend. We might do that. Yeah. Because we really do. I mean, for, for us, my daughter and I, all of October is Halloween. Every weekend, she's she's now twenty six. She still came over every every Friday, and we would force our respective spouses to watch horror movies with us. And we had a, a certain tradition. You know, we would go through for a while. We would watch some of our favorites. One of these that you have, I've actually forced you to watch, The Haunting. We had mm-hmm. a certain group of movies that we would watch. Sometimes we just sort of did it in more thematic ways creepy alien movies creepy you know whatever um but that and so we might have to to just have squeak in one horror movie before the baby is born i mean what better way to introduce this child into the world than a virtual watch party of a horrific film maybe rosemary's baby that would be our you know what yeah you know what i cannot think of any reasons why that's a bad idea (laughs) <laughs> Can I think of any reason whatsoever? Thank you, Google Chrome. All right. Before we get to the most least important thing, before we get to the realist Halloween movie this side of October 2020, it's time for Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> Labyrinth, a 2006 classic, directed by none other than Guillermo del Toro. Uh, no longer his weirdest movie after he made one wherein a fish man and a human woman had intercourse and somehow won an Oscar. <laughs> Pan's Labyrinth was probably his weirdest film prior. Is that fair to say? You know what? I actually have to say Hellboy 2 might have been a little bit weirder. At least in terms of the creatures you see. The creatures in Hellboy 2, pretty bizarre. Pretty bizarre. But yeah, oh. I, 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 it, it might not have been his weirdest movie, but it was definitely his best. I think that Pan's Labyrinth is sort of what put Del Toro on the map. He's always been known as a creature monster type of director. Um, has this very fantasy slash horror movie uh vibe to him and and pan's labyrinth was kind of what put him on the map i think and i have to say i this is on my backlist hall of shame and so that was the other reason i felt like i could squeeze this one in here as a freaky supernatural halloween film slash backlist hall of shame watch for me um i have to say for everything i had heard about the film i i was expecting something very different than what I actually got. Oh, that's interesting. So what were you expecting? 
So for all of those who, like me, had not seen this prior, I'll say spoiler alert. We're just going to get into all of it here. Because guess what? The movie's almost 15 years old now. My goodness. It's almost old enough to drive. That's really scary. Yeah. Yeah. The little girl that was a little girl in the movie is now in her mid-20s and making other shows. Like the Shannara Chronicles. The actress Ivana Baccaro. But uh, for everything I'd... Pan's Labyrinth, the the art that you see on posters or on its Netflix thumbnail, or people talk about, oh, it's so creepy and freaky, and the guy with the eyeballs and his hands that he holds up over his face. And I thought that most of this movie took place in a fantasy world of Pan's Labyrinth, only to find out that there's nobody named Pan in the movie. <laughs> and the labyrinth is... One, barely in the movie, and two, set in the real world, not a fantasy world, and very little of the movie. A tiny, tiny fraction of the movie takes place in any sort of fantasy setting, and most of it is very much grounded in the mid-1940s Spain. Correct, correct. That, like, I knew, I think I it had been built up in my head as this labyrinth was some sort of escape from this world, or world that she was drawn into out of this dark world not so much that hey most of the story actually happens in the 20th century yeah yeah the the monsters that you see on screen are not the creatures you see on screen the real monsters man oh man the uh it, it takes place as you say in mid-1940s fascist spain um and in it's it essentially takes place in this uh this military um, compound. Uh, it's by a mill, but it's sort of been taken over by by Franco's forces. And there is a evil, evil, evil captain who runs the whole place. He has just gotten married um, and is bringing his pregnant wife to the compound, to the mill, uh, because he the the wife is just about to give birth, as a matter of fact. And she has a a daughter from a previous marriage. Her husband apparently died in the war. Um, so they're, they're sort of gathering together as one not-so-happy family. Um, we know right from the get-go that the captain is just a piece of work. Um, you know that the, the daughter, who's probably about 11 years old, her name is Ophelia, mm-hmm. She's very suspicious of him and has reason to be. Um, And in the process, she starts to discover some strange things about this particular compound, including a maze that's really right next door. She walks in, she stumbles upon this maze, she finds her way to the center, and this fawn, a very tall, very creepy, very wood-like fawn, speaks to her and tells her that she may indeed be actually a long-lost princess to an underworld that she had no idea about. And so that's sort of where the fantastic realm sort of opens up in this story. It is a very unusual story in that it really juxtaposes this fantasy world that you, that as you say, Jake, gets all the publicity along with this very real, very harsh, very brutal uh, world of, of, of fascist Spain. Yeah. And that for me is what actually ended up making it, in my opinion, a true horror film. 
you know, certainly more in the Gothic tradition of horror than the supernatural tradition of horror, although there are those fantasy elements, but those are truly more fantasy. But it's in this depiction of fascist Spain as uh, embodied in this Captain Vidal character where, man, I was depressed and disheartened. And and there were many things, both visually and emotionally, that are truly horrific in the film. And for and and uh, in the truest sense, in my opinion, apocalyptic in the original sense of the word. Uh, We use apocalyptic in pop culture in a very unoriginal sort of way. It's not according to its intended meaning, right? We've, we kind of use it to mean it's the end of the world when the word apocalypse actually just means revelation, the unveiling of something. And what we see in Pan's Labyrinth is a apocalypse, an unveiling of the evil in this individual, as well as in this ideology of the fascism of you know, uh, fascist Spain at the time as embodied in Captain Vidal. And it's truly the, you know, a curtain being pulled back on this evil. And you look at a lot of uh, people who have written about the movie since then, even the character with the eyeballs in his hands who presides over this table, this feast that nobody can take for, you know, or else be consumed by the evil. Um and that's being juxtaposed with the clergy and the the leadership of this country being pulled in by fascist Spain and consuming the people of Spain. Like really what we have here is an apocalyptic horror movie in the truest sense. And that's why I feel Pan's Labyrinth was a great horror film. Yeah, you know, it, it, I think that all that is fair. I grudgingly admit that it's fair. It is not a horror movie in what I would consider a horror movie in that you see some terrible, terrible things. You see some very creepy things. There is only five minutes in the movie that is truly scary, right? You, all of the brutality that you see, it feels a little bit more along the lines of a Schindler's list. It, you could argue that it, it has sort of this bloody saw type of feel to it, because as you say, uh, the captain is just evil and brutal and you see him do some really terrible things to people. Uh, one of the scenes that I had forgotten all about was at the very, very beginning right. uh, when he smashes a guy's face in, I had not remembered that at all. You think that that message that that visual would have been burned into my brain, but it was not. Um, so you, yeah, st- I had to look away. It was really terrible. I actually, I think I jumped on the couch a little bit just because it was so ugh, very, very disgusting. Um, but at the same time, it it just felt gory. It didn't feel scary. Um, the fantastic worlds were really mesmerizing. They, it was it was creepy in in a lot of respects, the same way that if you really dive into Alice in Wonderland, it would be creepy. There's some really fantastic elements, and I think that that Del Toro played up with the idea that that this was sort of a modern day Alice. She even wears a dress very much like the Disney version of Alice in Wonderland. Um, so you have those fantastical elements blending with that, but but. For me, a horror movie has got to be scary. 
I, I need to feel like I'm going to be looking over the couch at some point in time. I feel like I need to, you know, want to turn on the lights. And, and this movie is not that type of movie. It's not. It's not a scary movie. And I'm with you there. But I think that's where it's important to differentiate. And I feel like pop culture has lost sight of this. There's a difference between a scary movie and a horror film. I mean, if Webster's Dictionary, if I may, says that an horror is an intense feeling of fear, shock, or disgust. And in that sense, we have a very true horror film. But you're right. It is not a scary film in the sense that there's no jump scares. There's nothing that feels immediately foreboding that's going to come out of the dark shadows of your basement or wherever you happen to be. You're not turning on all the lights in the house like I did after I watched Silence of the Lambs. But it, I, I think by a true definition of horror, this is the epitome of it for me. So here you are again, right and wrong. <laughs> because I think, I think that we can, let me just back up. When we talk about horror movies, when I talk about my, my kind of, I dig horror movies, what I'm really talking about is I dig terror movies. It doesn't sound nearly as cool, but the terror, the difference between the definition of terror and horror is that terror is sort of the anticipation of something terrible happening. You know, you, you, you feel the goose flesh on your, on your body. You feel the hair stand up on the back of your head. You, you get anticipated. It's, it's when in the horror movie that you say, don't go in that door. <laughs> when you see what's behind the door and when it starts eating the person or whatever, then that becomes the horror. What, what most horror movies are shooting for is the terror. So in truth, by the strict definition, I think that you are right. Um, the horror actually takes a step beyond what we think of as horror movies or what we think of as good horror movies, I would say. Um, I would say true and classic, just to defend myself a little bit. <laughs> true but, and classic definition. At the same time, you know, language changes. So I don't think we can ignore the modern definition of a, what a horror movie is. I'm not ignoring it. I'm just saying it's wrong. Oh my goodness. It's it's incomplete. Oh my goodness. I'm but, saying, Paul, you know what? What I'm really trying to say here is you're a plebeian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Good you good. and your pedestrian fare must give you these emotional, physical reactions because you are just common swine. Yes, Jake, you the person who I have to force every year to watch a terror slash horror movie. You certainly know much more about horror movies than I do. Well, certainly. Intellectually. <laughs> but there was one truly scary scene in here, and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it. The creature with the eyes in his hands. The pale man. The Pale Man. It's got to be, I think, one of the greatest, creepiest critters to ever see the light of day on film. I mean, I don't quite know what the logic is for the Pale Man to put, actually put his eyes over where his eyes should be with his hands. Right. But man, what a visual that was. 
is to see those long clawy fingers just sort of tentacling out like spiders as he looks for Ophelia and the whole idea of him chasing after her that that is nightmare fuel it was great and I think that that's the scene that really sticks out in everybody's mind in some ways because the the image of that creature is just so powerful Right. I mean, here you have this naked, old, it's got old, droopy, saggy skin, and it's fat in the wrong places, and it's skinny as death in the wrong places, and... Feels like me some mornings. The the colors are all wrong, and the paunch to the skin is awful, and it is a very disquieting feature, like, uh, figure especially as it starts to walk on legs that shouldn't be able to support it and reach forward with its eye slash hand and it, and its appetite, you know, and its mouth to eat fairies. And you would think Ophelia would have known better. So the whole thing, if you haven't seen this movie and you probably should, if you can deal with some of the content, um, it is, you see, you know, Ophelia goes down into this realm of the pale man, this huge dining room with this spectacular feast. And she's told repeatedly, told time and time and time again, do not eat anything because it will be bad. She goes into this dining room and she sees these paintings of the pale man who's sitting catatonic on one side of the table. She sees pictures, paintings of the pale man killing and eating children. Right. Does she pay attention to any of this? No. She plucks a grape and she eats it. And of course it awakes the pale man. And I don't know whether I would be interested. This is something that I might have to do some research on. The fairy tale idea of the protagonist doing something that he or she should absolutely not do. Because it seems like that's often a feature in fairy tales. And that's that's more than anything what this movie is. It's a fairy tale. Right. A fairy tale that wants to use uh, is setting up parallels with the parable that's playing out in the real world next to it. You know, you could say that uh, the comp to her in that scene is the doctor who chooses to aid and the captain, even while he knows he should be and tries to help the rebels he still dines and gets and is able to have the good food and the creature comforts of working for the fascist regime and thinks he can have his cake and eat it too and ends up paying the price for that. Um, you know, there's something to be, and it's played out much more starkly in the fairy, ver, the sort of the fairy tale version where everything becomes black and white, eat or don't eat, kill or be killed, you know, where it, it, they struggle in the real world. The doctor struggles with the nuance yeah. and whether he's doing enough or not and whether he's uh, too soft and capitulated to the yeah the evil empire too much. And so it's a really fascinating juxtaposition where the morality at face in the the tests that Ophelia undergoes feels much more black and white and yet ultimately turns out to be more gray than she anticipated. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating movie in a lot of ways. And I think that that when you watch Del Toro do his thing, one one of the recurring things that you see over and over and over in his movies is these dark fairy tale worlds uh that that 
speak of both dream and nightmare in the childhood realm. You know, I think that that his Hellboy movies did that really well, quite frankly. Um, you see a little bit of that in Shape of Water, which honestly, I still think is one of Del Toro's worst movies. I just I just don't like it very much. Um, but you see it especially here. Um, he does a nice job, I think, of capturing the essence of what it means to be a child, to in some ways go to bed in a dark room and know that there's something under your bed, to know that there's something hidden in your closet, um, to know that lurking out in the backyard there might be fairies or gnomes or whatever. Because I think that the children have the uh, natural aptitude to believe in those things. Um, and, and I think that he captures, he is able to capture that, that essence in a way that it's both sort of magical and kind of creepy, good and bad. And just, it's, it really blends some very interesting elements that feel, um, in this movie and in other movies, fairly pagan feel very, fairly, um, Almost what what Lewis would describe, and this is going to be a terrible in in perhaps uh, irreligious comparison, but but it reminds me a little of when C.S. Lewis wrote in his book about old magic and older magic. There's a certain depth here. There's this hidden world that that the world of man is sort of overlaid on top of this fairy tale world, and that um, we lose something both grand and terrible when we lose sight of it. There you go. So for me, scratching this off the backlist, Hall of Shame, um, I think it, overall, what's that? Did you like it? Yeah. I, ultimately, I, I, I liked it and appreciated it. Um, I would say on a scale of 1 to 10, I'd give it a 7.75. 7. I don't think it's perfect. I don't think it's a peak of filmmaking. There's certain choices that characters have to make to keep the story going that don't really – register like intellectually you just think i don't see how that character could have made that decision but i see how they needed it to happen for the story so it's not perfect and yet it all comes together in a really well done package that i ended up being moved by and i thought the pieces the fact that it didn't have to rely so heavily on an entire fantasy setting it it and it grounded itself in the real world i thought helped it feel uh, like it could hold up for quite a long time. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that this will be, frankly, as I've said before, I think this will be likely Del Toro's most enduring film that we've seen so far. Um, Oscar, no, I just don't think The Shape of Water has the oomph that Pan's Labyrinth does. Um, another thing, and I'll just mention this because I know we got to move on, but um, the spirituality is pretty interesting in, in this movie. Uh, Del Toro is an atheist, and he has called it an anti-Catholic film. And you can see elements within this movie that suggest that. Other people have found some deep, resonant Christian-slash-Catholic values within this, um, especially when you when you look toward the end and, and see Ophelia's actions toward the end. It has a deep resonance, I think, of people of faith. And so... Uh, in some ways, it speaks to in 
in a way, the hidden nature of faith too, you know, where Del Toro is fascinated by these hidden realms. When you talk about faith, when you talk about God, there is also a hidden realm within that spirituality, I think, that sometimes reveals itself in unexpected moments, just as Del Toro reveals his monsters in unexpected moments. And I think that this this movie, Pad's Labyrinth, is a good example of that. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like the anti-Catholic sentiment was pretty muted. It was there, certainly, but it was it didn't seem like it was really in your face. And then to your point, the themes that the movie ends up sort of reinforcing have a bit of that uh, Apostle Paul on Mars Hill feel of where you can step up to it and they say, hey, do you see these ideas? Do you see these concepts that you've you're you're drawing out here that you're feeling out here? You don't know where they land and you're dealing with them in these murky fairy tales. Let me show you the source. I know the source of these things. I know that who these un, I know what is behind these unknowns that you're feeling out. Um, so yeah, I I I, uh, I agree with you there. So Pan's Labyrinth, it's on Netflix. It's a hard watch. I don't recommend it as leisurely viewing oh, or if you're squeamish. Uh, but it is on Netflix right now. It can be viewed, and if you're into classic horror, you can watch Pan's Labyrinth this Halloween season. <laughs> Or, or you could watch a real scary movie and watch The Haunting. Or you can watch a new Halloween movie that also has some very Christian themes. <laughs> movie Halloween. Oh my goodness. Sticking with Netflix, we've got a new Netflix original film, Hubie Halloween, dropping hot into people's October 2020 queues around at least the United States. Hubie Halloween, an Adam Sandler joint, even though he doesn't call them joints. Paul, how much on a scale of on a scale of little Nikki to 51st dates, how much did you love Hubie Halloween? Oh my goodness. That's a terrible scale. I I do have to say I'm not up I, I do not watch a lot of Adam Sandler movies, and that is by choice. That is by choice. I uh I, he's he's an interesting guy, but so much of what he does is so worthless. That said. I have to say that I enjoyed Hubie Halloween more than I thought I would. Well, there you go. Yeah, for me, Adam, there's a there's a spectrum of Adam Sandler movies. That was a hell of a movie, is one. Uh, then there's, <laughs> then there's what the hell did I just watch? And then there's who the hell greenlit that? <laughs> and then there's Jack and Jill. This sort of falls into that middle category of Adam Sandler movies for me in that it's not per- it doesn't it doesn't really grab you. It's not one of his best movies where uncut gems comes out of nowhere and everybody's like, "Wow, what a film." Uh it's also not one of his more offensive films. It feels pretty vanilla compared to the on the Adam Sandler scale of <laughs> Little Nicky to 50 First Dates. <laughs> Vanilla in terms of Adam Sandler films. I think that's an important caveat to make there because let's face it, Adam Sandler 
his his sense of humor is right about at the twelve to thirteen year old level. Yeah, it just got stuck there. It just, just never stuck there. It just never went beyond that. He digs the fart jokes. He digs the urination jokes. He loves just gross, lewd bits of humor, but it never gets like, I don't know if I've ever seen him, and I don't know whether he's done a, an R-rated comedy or not, actually. He has. It, usually the, the stuff that I've seen him in, it stays at sort of this PG-13 level where it's pretty immature, it's pretty silly, it's kind of gross, and you just wish that he would grow up, but it doesn't get really beyond that. And that's this is definitely a movie that does not in terms of the content, go beyond that. The other odd thing about Adam Sandler movies that I've found, they're often underneath all the grotesqueries, they're kind of sweet. He's right. got like a real sweet spot in him, I think. And and this movie, it actually surprised me how sweet it is. Just, just to give a quick rundown of the plot, Hubie is this... Um, so we, shall we say mentally challenged individual, uh, played by, by Adam Sandler. He does have like a great vocabulary, but he doesn't have very many social skills. He's had some, he clearly has had some issues. He's socially challenged. Certainly. He's socially challenged. He lives in Salem, Massachusetts, which, uh, of course you would imagine Halloween is kind of a big deal in Salem. Um, he has appointed himself as caretaker of Halloween. He is Halloween monitor, and he tries to keep everyone safe and happy during the holiday. Everybody hates that he does it. And <laughs> you can understand why he would be a little bit exasperating. Um, but this particular Halloween, you have a potential werewolf living somewhere in the neighborhood. You have an escaped criminal lurking about. And then you have these mysterious disappearances. So maybe Hubie's role as sort of the Halloween caretaker is not so laughable after all. That is actually more of an explanation of the plot than the movie actually gives. <laughs> I was struck watching Hubie Halloween with how pointless it kind of felt. Like even with those very loose plot threads trying to pull it all the way through i found myself thinking through in the like from start to finish and after it was done and now days later i honestly don't know why this movie was made oh you know even usually with bad movies you can see what somebody was going for like with uh plan nine from outer space terrible movie but they were going for something they were going for something and and sometimes it can be as little of something as, hey, I just want to make a really raunchy movie and I'm going to go for it. Hubie Halloween, I don't know who this movie's really for. I don't know what they're like, well, who the audience is. I don't know what really, even though they end up smacking you across the face with a dead fish, basically, with the point at the end, I still was like, you literally just laid out your point like a Sunday school lesson at the end. And I still don't get what the point of this movie was. <laughs> you know, honestly, here's what I think the point is. Adam Sandler makes movies the same way we make podcasts. Hmm. 
And I say that because I, and, and I think that Sandler's actually admitted this in interviews. A lot of times he makes movies just because he likes to hang out with people. And sometimes the movies are an excuse to hang out in uh, Jamaica or hang out in Florida for a little while with all the people who he enjoys seeing. You see the same people, the same cast of characters over and over in his Happy Madison production. So they just, they are just regulars with, with Adam Sandler. And I think that he has the remarkable <laughs> ability uh, or gift or, I don't know, just dumb luck where he can do pretty much whatever he will want. He can hang out and spend a good movie shoot with his friends, do have a lot of fun, and people will actually pay to watch it. You know, they'll always make 40 to $60 million or they'll be picked up by Netflix and it gives him all the more reason to make another completely pointless movie with all of his friends. The only difference really between what he does and what we do is that someone's actually paying him to do it. <laughs> it is a sweet gig when you think about it. When you think about how much he gets paid to do that, uh, I, I'm... A bit envious of it. I don't fault him for it. And you know what? The point that he did try to make here, yeah. to go back to the 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 segue that I used between our segments, was remarkably Christian in what in its point. Right? It was like, even if the movie itself isn't, the point itself is like straight up out of the Sermon on the Mount almost. Yeah, you know, here, it's it's a remarkably nice message, the idea that this guy who gives and gives and gives of himself, who's the nicest guy around, who takes a lot of abuse that he doesn't deserve, he he really is the hero of the story, right? I I totally get that. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if that's uniquely Christian, but it is nice. No, but you're you're putting less of a fine point on it than they do. They say outright, and I won't get into the spoilers of how it gets here, but they say outright, people treated you horribly. They treated you this way, that way, the other way, in horrible ways. And yet, even so, you gave yourself sacrificially to take care of them, to show them compassion, to show them kindness like that is straight out of luke chapter six when jesus talks about being perfect like my father is perfect he says love your enemies turn the other cheek lend to them not expecting to get repaid be gracious and merciful to your enemies just like your father like that that is straight out of luke chapter six like they said it so directly i was like whoa that's the most Christian approach to dealing with people that have mistreated you, that have marginalized you, that have abused you, that have looked down upon you. Like that's the most Christian explanation I've seen of that, like outside of a sermon about Luke chapter six. <laughs> Jake, I have to say I'm curiously proud of you now, right now. <laughs> <laughs> Drawing all of that out of Hubie Halloween. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. I'd buy it. I'd buy it. I totally do. I think that that your point is well taken. I still don't think it's it's specifically Christian, but 
at the same time, it is very Christian, and you're right. It could be it could be used as a sermon illustration any old place if any any preacher anywhere would want his <laughs> congregation watching Hubie Halloween, which I seriously doubt. Right, you're not going to assign Hubie Halloween as homework for your Sunday school class, clearly. <laughs> and and I get that it's hard to give Adam Sandler that even that much credit. It's like, but, but that the idea of being, of showing active and uh, showing proactive compassion to your enemies in the face of your abuse is very, there's not a whole lot of worldviews or systems out there. And I don't believe any that predate Christianity that have that concept. Like that is one of the most radical things about the gospel is this idea that to win, to be a kingdom citizen, we up subvert the world's powers by not striking back against our enemies, not exerting power over our enemies, but by serving them and taking care of them. And that is like, to me, that's one of the most radical things I've learned about about other religions, about systems of world power, it is so rare, and it originates from the yeah. gospel. Yeah, and I think that again, I don't think you're wrong. I just give <laughs> Halloween that much credit, you know, yeah. because it really is. It is. It's a dumb movie, but <laughs> it's very dumb. Very good kernel of truth to it. Yep, and I must say, it also has. A really fantastic thermos. It has a really great thermos. I bet. I just thought the whole time I was like, Paul is going to be so jealous, and he's going to ask me to get him this thermos for. Oh yeah. For Hanukkah. Yeah. <laughs> because ironically, with everything that you said, Adam Sandler isn't even Christian. He's Jewish, right? Right. And so- his character in the film as well <laughs> is explicitly stated to be Jewish. So. Hey, but as was Jesus. So there you go. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's really tough. You know, as much as I could wax eloquent, I felt like Paul making that point because there have been a lot of times where I've read Paul AC blogs over the years. I was like, boy, that was a stretch to mind that little nugget of, you know, when Paul talks about finding God or watching God at the movies, like sometimes he is squinting really hard. (laughs) I felt like. This one was funny because you had to squint really hard as they, again, slap you with a rubber chicken. <laughs> and and I don't want to give this movie too much credit because I have to say, Paul, I don't think I laughed once. Oh. Uh, Hubie Halloween. I, I did like it more than I thought. I thought that this movie was going to be like a three or a four out of ten for me. But you know what? It, it got a five and a half out of ten for me. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't bad. It wasn't, I really did think it was going to be a step above Borat for sure. But I really didn't think I was, I thought I was really going to hate this movie. I did not hate this movie. I found it partially watchable. I found it, you know, it was a solid five for me. And I did laugh in places. I thought the message was nice. One of the things that I actually really enjoyed about it actually was uh, was watching all the famous people who were a part of it. I mean, Adam Sandler, he draws some talent. 
you've got a lot of people who show up here. Um, I think my favorite cameo might have been Shaq, Shaq Shaquille O'Neal. He yep. was uh, he was pretty good, and I'm not even going to say what he did in it, but it was pretty good. You got a good cameo from Shaq and Steve Buscemi for me. Keeps stealing these Adam Sandler films. I tell you what, I am a, I am always a big fan of Maya Rudolph. I think she's one of the funniest people in movies, and she did not disappoint in here. I thought she was pretty good. There you go. Hubie Halloween, it's in Netflix queues. We don't recommend it, but <laughs> it's also not the worst thing you could watch this Halloween. I'm sure Paul will find the worst thing he could watch this Halloween and watch it with his daughter and uh, soon-to-be-born grandchild. Congratulations, by the way, Paul. Why, thank you. Thank you. The time is ticking. It's coming soon. It's safe to say that the child's name will not be Hubie? It is safe to say. Now, I have been told a few of the possible names. I don't know. I don't know. None of them are Paul. So that's (laughs) a little bit bitter. Very disappointing. But now it's time for the most least important thing. in the most least important thing the way we love to wrap up every single little show of ours you know in one way we've already done it on this episode by me taking the molehill of hubie halloween's point quote unquote and turning it into a mountain the sermon on the mountain exactly hey hey paul's picking up what i'm putting down (laughs) but now it's time for us to do it with random Pop culture related news. So, Paul, what do you got for us today? Well, Jake, because you actually skirted the entire purpose of this podcast during Halloween, avoiding any scary movies whatsoever, I felt like I really needed to go there. I needed to actually have some sort of nice scary movie tie in. And if you have not watched this movie that I'm about to reference, count it for next year senor i've forgotten already the movie is alien oh i have seen alien we've talked about it on this very show okay good the backlist of mine in fact oh really really i feel really bad i tend to block out all of our podcasts as much as possible well as and also as we established you're a grandfather now so it comes with the territory (laughs) so let me tell you about alien this movie that we have talked about on the podcast (laughs) there is a guy who is way more an alien fan than either of us are. He, his name is Louis Nostromo, who I believe has changed his last name to, <laughs> to coincide with the actual ship in Alien called the Nostromo. Mm. Um, he has actually redone his entire apartment in Barcelona, Spain, to replicate the movie Alien. That is terrifying. He has the hallways of the Nostromo. He has the creepy little areas. He's got the laboratory where the chest thing pops out of the chest. Um, He has replicas of of Ash's head, milky white head sort of laying on the counter. He has um, the little things that grab on your face. He has a life-size alien replica 
in his apartment. He is turning it into a museum. I think that he has another place that he actually also lives because it seems curious to imagine him living with all this uh, movie movie props and, and design areas and all that sort of stuff. But the apartment is really quite incredible. It looks very much like the movie Alien, and that is more dedication to a movie than I will ever, ever have. So if you're in Barcelona, feel free to check out this apartment because by the time you hear this, it'll probably be open for business and you can pay $50 to walk through it. Would you pay any amount of money to walk through it? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah. If I was in Barcelona, Spain, I would be super, super interested in the architecture of Anton Gaudi because he's a really fantastic architecture type of guy. Um, it's it's amazing. But then next on my list, after I see all of Gaudi's works, I am heading straight to the alien apartment. How much would you pay? What's your like, top? How much would I pay? If yeah. I made it all the way to Barcelona... I'm going to see that alien apartment and and I would pay I would pay definitely 40 maybe $50 to see it. But if I charge 75 a ticket? Oh, you know what? We might we might just take that out and have a nice dinner instead. But you're in Barcelona. Now I'm being <laughs> devil's advocate cuz it's Halloween. Yeah, how much would you pay? Uh That kind of thing, here's the thing. Rep people's own replicas of Hollywood stuff doesn't really do it for me. Like I appreciate that I appreciate that it's meaningful to them, but I don't have any personal interest in going to see it. No, because it's not the original. Oh, but it is. There are lots of actual original alien movie props. In but, but but I'm saying it's not like I'm on the set where it happened. Sure, there might be a couple of props, but it just doesn't hold that magic for me. So uh, would I pay five bucks? No, I'd pull an Iron Man and I'd make Pat Paul pay the five bucks for me. I would be willing for Paul to spend up to $5 of his own money to take me. You would be waiting out on the curb because you would not appreciate it like you should. <laughs> And I would have gotten what I wanted. I would go get some, I'd take my money and go get food. Just like Paul said, he would do it to 75. I'd be like, Paul, give me that 75. Let's go to dinner. <laughs> my most least important thing this go around is that I may have just helped orchestrate the greatest crossover in television and YouTube history. It may also be too early for me to claim that, but I need it documented here just in case it does happen. This is time stamped, right? Time so stamped. as is the tweet that I'm talking about, uh, as, as are my wonderful friends who listen to this show regularly know, I'm something of a Twitter, uh, boss. I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty great at Twitter. Not at, not at like, I don't try to grow my following to massive amounts of people, but I use it in strategic ways to make it more fun for myself. And I think I do it pretty well. I've gone viral a few times, been retweeted by Chris Pratt. What were you just saying? If if you're judging it by making it more fun for yourself, you're really the only one who is qualified to judge that. Exactly. I'm amazing. For everybody else, I'm not sure, but go ahead. Well, if I pull this off, then everyone is welcome because I was listening to the office ladies podcast, fellow podcasters, Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey. I mean, they're, they're basically coworkers of ours at this point. 
you know, we're all podcasters here, but they do, they do it. They're going through the office, rewatching it. It's a fun little show as a part of their episode talking about safety training, the safety training episode of the office. Have you seen this one, Paul? I have not. No, it involves at one point. That's it. Two episodes, two episodes. Well, unfortunately it wasn't this one, but One part of the safety training episode involves dropping a watermelon off of a building onto a trampoline, the watermelon hitting the trampoline, ejecting across the parking lot and smashing on top of a car. A very complex shot. And the the ladies start talking about how when they went to film this, they had 12 watermelons to film this. And every one that they dropped, it was not getting anywhere close to hitting the trampoline and then launching to a car. And they were about to give up. But on the 11th watermelon, it hits the right edge of the trampoline and launches itself across, smashes on the car perfectly, did about 5000 or $6,000 worth of damage to the rental car that they had to pay. <laughs> so it was a very expensive joke. But Jenna Fisher, who played Pam in The Office, Angela Kinsey, who played Angela in The Office, start talking about how this reminded them of a Dude Perfect video that story. And then they start talking about how their kids are all in the dude perfect. And I, you know, I think I've talked about on this very show, I'm a dude perfect fan. And they end up talking about how fun would it be to do a collaboration with dude perfect and office ladies dude, perfect collaboration. And I thought to myself, when I heard that I need to tweet about this because I don't know if the dude perfect guys are listening to office ladies or not, but I need to make sure they're aware of this possibility. And so I, dutifully tweeted about this and do you know what paul Mm. dude perfect saw it they liked my tweet and they replied to it tagging jana fisher and angela kinsey proposing a collaboration episode between the office and dude perfect my goodness that is actually pretty cool that would be the greatest TV YouTube crossover event in YouTube TV crossover event history. At All thanks to me. By Jake Roberson. That's right. Yeah. Wow. That's that is actually pretty cool, Jake. I have to say the the spookiest thing about this entire podcast is you've actually done some pretty cool things. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that seems eerie. That seems unnatural. That seems downright scary suspicious yes but congratulations that's really cool yeah so this could be a truly least important thing if that was all a joke on the office ladies part and nothing ever happens but if it gets pulled off if there is a dude perfect office ladies collaboration i am going to be i mean i just i think that gets me a spot in the twitter hall of fame right like automatically I don't know if that does, but yeah, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. But we will all dutifully notify you on on this podcast that you've done good work if it actually happens. We will we will praise you slightly. This news is wasted upon the <laughs> Hubie Dubois. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. If you'd like to be a part of my Twitter prowess, you can follow me at Jake underscore Roberson. Or if you'd you know like to follow a less prolific tweeter, Paul, what's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is at AC Paul. But otherwise, I'll, uh, I'll just say that I'll see you next time. And 
I'll catch you on the flip side. Bye. Oh, 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 oh